0: Welcome to season three, episode five of Which Decade is Tops of Pops? Hello, Nick. Hello. Hello, Trev. Hello there. Our magic randomizer has given us a year suffix of three and a chart position of six, meaning that we will be looking at records that were number six in the charts on Valentine's Day, February the 14th in 1963, 1973, all the way to 2013. If you subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops, you get to hear the full tracks embedded with each episode. Everyone else, you'll need playlists for the YouTube, tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 35Y for Spotify Witch Decade 35S for the extracts tracks and bonus bits which decade 35E. Let's crack straight on with The 60s. This is Loop De Loop by Frankie Vaughan. It was the 16th of 18 top 20 hits that Frankie Vaughan had between 1954 and 1967. And that includes two number ones. This
1: one peaked at number five. I promise you I'm going to get to talk about the track that we're meant to be talking about. But you might think (laughs) I'm not going to go straight in when I say... Dance music really does have a long and complex history. And the more answers you find, the more questions they in turn bring up. In our last podcast, we discussed Cascada savaging Savage Garden with an inexplicable cover. However, I personally think that that record would have been improved if it had some bloke occasionally shouting things like, are you ready? And one, two, three over the top of it because some bloke randomly shouting bizarre phrases over the top of a questionable cover is as much a cornerstone of dance music as a 4-4-B is and casual drug abuse. In his seminal and only hit, 2000's Hey Baby, DJ Oxy, Austria's biggest DJ named after a frozen mummified 5,000-year-old man, shouted random stuff and occasionally showcased his ability to count. Before that, Entrance torpedoed their career with a baffling cover of Staying Alive, complete with legendary MC Ricard, For some reason, taking a paycheck to deliver the phrase, which was instantly cringe, but is now a classic, get raw with the fever on the dance floor, which lyrically makes no sense. But then neither did Scooter's H. P. Baxter when he shouted, "Jump that rock!" Over their version of whatever you want by status quo, that status quo liked so much they appeared on it. Before that, of course, Timmy Mallet. A man who I model my fashion sense on reinvented techno for the populist up massive audiences of the 1990s by pretending to shout, oh yeah, over the top of folk standard itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. Every single one of these covers, and so many more, have vastly improved the original and enriched our cultural landscape. And if there are ever any old people who say that modern cover versions are ruining classic songs, you can simply point to this record by Frankie Vaughan, where he covers a song that had only been out months, which in itself was a recording of a standard, and it involves him saying things like, are you ready? And indeed, counting over the top of it. I think the legacy of this song speaks for itself. And it is a legacy of all of those artists that I've just listed. I don't really know what's going on in here. If you think that modern music's derivative, I don't think you've listened to enough old stuff. It's just really baffled
2: me a little bit. I mean, you've made it such that I can't really follow that with any meaningful commentary. I think it would be fair to say. One of the most interesting things I think I've learned over the two and a half seasons that we've done this is that a lot of music comes from bygone eras that I don't think I ever really knew before. We talked about uh, Can't Help Falling in Love, I think, was from the 1800s. Just in the last episode, but one we talked about those were the days, which is the nineteen twenties Russian folk song and stuff. And and here we are again. Here we go, loop de loop, originally from popular rhymes and nursery tales of eighteen forty-nine. So more than a hundred years later, British grooner and popular all around entertainer Frankie Vaughan decides to release a version of this, which as far as I could tell was recorded in a village hall. It's live, isn't it? But he's not doing it at Wembley Arena, is he? I listened to all of Frankie Bourne's hits the other day, and what I found most astonishing about it was how unremarkable it is. His voice is fine, but there's nothing particularly going on there. There's a bit like Val Doona, no, nothing that elevates him above being like a decent enough singer, as far as I could tell. A couple of his songs are good. Tower of Strength, I quite like. I mean, it was the number one. I quite like that. But this is just... I mean, it's a nursery rhyme. He might as well have done... Old MacDonald or Bar Bar Black Sheep. You know, here we go, loop de loop. On a, I don't even know what it means. I mean, they hadn't invented aeroplanes in 1849. So how they were looping de loop, I've absolutely no idea. I don't get it. We're in the era of the Beatles, nearly. Why is an old man having a hit with a nursery rhyme recorded in a, at a village fete? I'm afraid I just don't understand. Do you know what? Frank
0: Sinatra put out a single... Where he actually did cover Old McDonald's Had a Farm.
2: Makes about as much sense as this.
0: Well, it falls to me to take Frankie Vaughan seriously. Here we go. <laughs> right. For the second time running, the 60s have given us an artist who the pop kids would have dismissed as boring old parents' music. And also, it's given us an artist whose name just made me groan when it came out on the Magic randomizer. Last time, Nick described Val Valdunican as the sort of act he'd had to sit through in the middle of the two Ronnies. This time, we've got an act that I used to have to sit through in the middle of Morecambe and Wise. But Frankie Vaughan's chart career started in 1954. That's earlier than any other act we've dealt with thus far. He'd already had 14 hits before we even get into the 1960s. So we're essentially dealing with someone who started his career in the pre-rock and roll era. Now, usually when I listen to hits from the pre-rock and roll era i find them pretty difficult to listen to they tend to be these big orchestrated schmaltzy ballads however i did my big deep dive into all of frankie vaughan's what was it 18 hits this last sunday morning and what a thoroughly pleasant sunday morning it turned out to be maybe it was the time of the day Sunday morning feels like a good time to be listening to kind of old school Radio 2 music. I also have to factor in the possibility that my mental state would have been different on that particular Sunday morning. I'd had a big Saturday night out the night before. And they do say it's not a proper Saturday night out until someone ends up in A&E. Well, my partner ended up in A&E. Please don't fret. He's fine. He's absolutely fine. But it was a weird evening. I was in a weird mood. Maybe the reassuring tones of Frankie Vaughan was exactly the balm I needed at that particular moment. But, you know, instead of the nonstop syrupy glue that I absolutely was expecting, I found a sequence of enjoyably spirited songs, sung with bags of personality. I came away from the experience, almost feeling like Frankie Vaughan was my new favorite artist. I do reserve the right to change my mind at a later date. I also recognized several of his hits as recorded by other people. So his first hit, Istanbul, not Constantinople. That was covered by They Might Be Giants. We had Green Door, that was number one for Shaken Stevens. We had Tweedledee, big hit for Little Jimmy Osmond. Hello Dolly, better known by Louis Armstrong. I think Frankie Vaughan does really good versions of all of them, better than some of the better-known versions in some cases. However, we must now come to Loop De Loop. And of all of Frankie Vaughan's singles, this one, I'd say, is the least typical. Dear listener, if Loop De Loop is the first Frankie Vaughan record you've ever heard, it doesn't really give you any useful indication of what he was like as an artist. It's basically because, unlike his other hits... This one to me feels like a slight attempt to move with the times, specifically with the twist. The twist was all the rage at this stage, having been popularised by Chubby Checker and Sam Cooke a year or so earlier. But yeah, bizarrely, he mashes this twist rhythm with the children's nursery rhyme. I remember this nursery rhyme really well. It's the sort of thing that used to get played at children's birthday parties along with simple Simon Says and the hokey Pokey. And yeah, it's also a cover of an American R&B and pop hit by Johnny Thunder and the Bobettes. This happened a lot. US R&B hits were always being covered by white British artists around about this time. Usually when I compare the UK covers with the US originals, I'll come down in favor of the US originals. But actually, I reckon for once, the Frankie Vaughan version compares really well to the Johnny Thunder version. And the Johnny Thunder version is no classic. It sounds like a cashing on Sam Cooke anyway. I think the UK arrangement is a bit faster, quite a lot fuller. Frankie sounds like he's having fun. Yeah, it's still a bit cringe. I do wish that one of his other hits had come up instead of this one. There's nothing here that I can hate. Now, I need to ask, do both of you know Here We Go, Loop De Loop as a nursery rhyme, or is it just my generation?
1: I think I knew the nursery rhyme more than this song. When you revealed the song track listing, I was like, oh, someone's done that as a song, have they? Fair enough. And then I heard it and was like, why has someone done that as a song?
2: Yeah, I would say exactly the same. I knew, obviously, instinctively knew it, but not as a pop hit.
1: There are lots of... Weird records like that, that have been bona fide hits. That sounds like I'm labouring wacky dance music here, uh, which I would never do. But Cotton Eye Joe, I think that's a folk song that they sort of turned into, you know, it's a pop classic now. Whereas I just find this a confusing affair. Is this, when it comes to his back catalogue, a bit like Put It On A String for Sandy Shaw? Almost, yeah. There's a bit more quality to the other ones, I'd say. If we're making
0: comparisons, you know, you're, you're, you're tracing this forward to 90s dance music. Do you suppose this was an influence on Sons of a Loop-to-Loop era?
1: I was wondering that about the artist and Loop-to-Loop, the remixes, uh, who were the late 90s sort of speed garage guys as well. And I'm not convinced that those lines are that drawable. You know, I do think you could draw a line from this type of stuff to DJ Otzi, but, you know, let's not actually act like we're talking about DJ Otzi's a serious dance music contender, which Sons of a Loop de Loop era and Loop de Loop, the remixes, certainly were. That said, it all comes from somewhere and maybe that's where they got the name from. Given the dark powers of our magic randomizer, something
0: tells me that DJ Otzi will be along sooner rather than later. And it could be any one of his hits. (laughs) Shall we progress? Let's move forward to... This is Rollover Beethoven by the Electric Light Orchestra. It was the second of 19 top 20s that ELO had between 1972 and 1983, peaked at this position of number six. Written by Chuck Berry, he released it as a single in 1956, but it wasn't actually released in the UK until 1969, and it never charted over here.
2: Well, a beautiful segue from talking about old 1950s rock and roll hits that were covered by white English people later on. We get to roll over Mate home, and obviously Chuck Berry, as you say, 1956, is also on with the Beatles. Certainly was one of their favourites at um, early doors that they performed live. So in 1970, Jeff Lynn decided to join the band The Move at that point. Essentially, he had an idea for ELO. But they had to fund it by making another Move album. So he joined the Move with Roy Wood, made the album, made a bit of money, and then decided to break up to form ELO. And what he wanted to do was to make pop music or rock music with a classical touch by using strings and brass and woodwind and all that sort of thing to meld kind of pop music with classical music, which is fine. Their debut single, uh, 105.38 Overture, does that. And then I suppose that almost the most logical place you can go is with a cover of Roll Over Beethoven, which they do by adding the Beethoven's fifth to the intro. So it felt like a sort of slightly obvious manifesto of rock music with classical music by doing a song like Roll Over Beethoven. Now, it's fine. Last time we talked about Truly Madly Deeply and Cascada. And what Cascada did with Truly Madly Deeply was to rip out everything that made Truly Madly Deeply great, shred it, and then put a eurobeat behind in that whatever was left. What I think Rollover Beethoven does, as good cover versions do, is that they retain enough of the stuff that made the original good and interpret it in a modern slash interesting way. And I think that you could argue that that is what they have done here. It is essentially got The same kind of 50s rock and roll, back to the future, under the sea dance vibe, but obviously updated. Now, pop music and classical music didn't necessarily start with ELO. Ten years from this, you get to Hooked on Classics, which seems to me the next logical thing, which was a top two, I think got to number two in the charts, the Royal Philharmonic Hooked on Classics in the early 80s. And even going for, I was thinking about something like Rather Be by Clean Bandit. The string intro of that is a mix of kind of classical Sort of string quartet, isn't it, with pop music? Obviously, what happened then is that they became incredibly successful and they just lent into Jeff Lynne's songwriting and musicality, essentially. I was thinking about this the other day that if I'd been 10 years older, I think ELO would have been my band. I love pop music, as you know, and I've been listening to a lot of ELO over the last couple of weeks and I absolutely love it all. And I just think it gets better and better and better. The better that Jeff Lynn got at writing songs, the better that ELO became. Some of it is just absolutely magnificent. I just think it's weird and beautiful and melodic. I just think they would have been my go-to big favourite band had I been born a little bit earlier. This is by no means my favourite of their songs. Like I say, it's a passable cover, But I think it did set out quite clearly what he wanted to do. But the evolution of ELO later on, to me, is much more interesting and important, I would say. Oh, a little, tiny little factoid. I think they're the only band to have four consecutive number six hits. Whoa. Mr. Blue Sky, Wild West Hero, Sweet Talking Woman, Shine a Little Love, four consecutive singles, all reach number six in the charts. There you go. Love that. Thank you for that knowledge. Ah,
1: ah. Uh, I, I like Yellow, I wouldn't classify myself as big fan of theirs, you know, I've got the greatest hits type thing however, I would like to refer the court to my previous comments about entirely unnecessary covers which I gave 15 minutes to uh, in my previous piece in Your Honour I think they've taken a brilliant song that lasted two and a half minutes and they've laboured it out I've written here, I'm going to say murdered it out for three days, I think as a throwaway piece, this would be brilliant to witness live. But as a single, I think this is smug and pointless. The initial bit with the classical music, I was like, oh, they're going to go. And they just sort of glued it in. It, they didn't really work it in there. And that's what I like about ELO with the other stuff. They work things in, they are very musical. I don't think Electric Light Orchestra is pretentious. I think that's accurate as a description of them. This just feels like a piece of live, something that, you know, chucking a cover, less is more, really. And for me, the less I say about this, the better. I mean, I've said more than three times what I'd written here. (laughs) This really crushingly disappointed me.
0: Well, Nick, you've talked about like ELO's mission statement, if you like. Just add one thing to that. Years and years and years ago, I back in the 70s, I read a quote from either Roy Wood or Jeff Lynn, don't remember who, and they said when they started ELO, one of their stated aims was to be the sort of live band who could perform a song like Strawberry Fields Forever on stage in a way that would sound like the original recorded version. So perhaps it's no surprise that Jeff Lynne ended up working with George Harrison in the Travelling Wilburys and he ended up producing those two 1990s posthumous Beatles singles. But ELO weren't the only classically inspired rock musicians at the time either. Far from it. Loads of people were doing it. At this time. So, for example, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, they'd already released an album based on Mussorgsky's Picture at an Exhibition. Deep Purple had recorded a live album with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra called Concerto for Group and Orchestra. The Moog synthesizer pioneer Wendy Carlos, she'd released a synth album called Switched on Bark. A year after this single, Rick Wakeman and the London Symphony Orchestra did Journey to the Centre of the Earth, which became recorded onto album. That includes a huge chunk of In the Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg, And of course, all of this reached its ultimate fruition in uh, Spinal Tap and Lick My Love Pump. So uh, within that context, it wasn't really that unusual for ELO to be quoting from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on their Chuck Berry cover progressive rock was a new term it was kind of the term du jour in 72 73 one of the things that people thought made it quote progressive is that many of its practitioners were striving to be taken as seriously as classical musicians you can see that in one of two ways you could see that great rock music is broadening its horizons and raising its ambitions or you can see it as its horrible betrayal of rock music as what was a revolutionary countercultural force, and if you took the latter view, then punk rock couldn't have come too quickly. I swung both ways. So in 1974, I was all for this sort of thing. I bought a lot of it, but by 1977, I was totally against it on principle and for years and years and years afterwards i'm still disown progressive rock as a terrible mistake it was proper lol what we were thinking territory these days well for the last 20 years i'm absolutely fine with the best of it some of my favorite music ever made and when the sort of you listen to the more second-rate stuff i'm amused by its quaintness shall we say so yeah you've got the classical influence on one hand but on the other hand again you've got the 50s rock and roll revivalism this is something we keep encountering with our 1970s selections shawadi wadi darts The Rubettes. chuck berry had sort of come back into fashion in the late 60s there there was a whole load of rock and roll revival gigs that started to be staged for younger rock audiences and since rollover beethoven had never been a hit in the uk You can see why ELO might want to turn it into a hit, especially as if you were young like me, you only really knew Chuck Berry from getting to number one with My Ding-A-Ling in 1972. It's almost like they were trying to restore his reputation and promote one of his classics that had underperformed in the UK. This is the most performed song in ELO's live repertoire. They usually finish their sets with it. But if you've never seen them live, well, it could completely pales into insignificance compared to their wonderful later hits. It's a bit like the Frankie Vaughan track in that it's a bit of a weird one to come up. I still think it's a decent effort, but yeah. It is overshadowed by the band's subsequent career.
2: I think I sort of agree with Trev in what he was saying, to a sense. I think I like it more than you, but it's probably my least favourite ELO single.
1: I'm not even sure I was aware of this. But yeah, the frog leadings and everything that they did other than this, I'm completely on board with. And I didn't find frog music too indulgent it was the indulgence that i thought made it fantastic uh yeah it was pompous and you know rick wakeman does wear a cape and you know they do ponce around talking about the armor and the cosmos and you know all of that kind of stuff and then just to do this I'm like get back on message if you like a bit of classical music in pop music i do think from the night fever soundtrack night on disco mountain is a wonderful example of that that's oh, a great yeah. and it's been sampled since by loads of people but you know when we're talking about bands doing you know a bit of classical music in there queen it was a big thing wasn't it yes on uh fragile i've got a tune called Hans and brahms mm. which is it's like an interlude piece which is rick Wakeman. there was loads of it around and i think loads of it is brilliant but i don't think this is at all unfortunately
0: There was at least one other hit, actually, that quoted from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's just popped into my head. From the disco era, from the Saturday Night Fever era, it may have been on the soundtrack album. Walter Murphy, a fifth of Beethoven.
2: Someone did an album of classic tracks as dance records in the 90s, 2000s.
1: William Orbit, What he did was he was proving we can do this all now, synthesised. The album isn't great because what people actually wanted were the remixes. So the version of Babs Adagio by William Orbit that everybody's heard is actually a remix of it. He just performed Babs Adagio as a piece in a, you know, I guess a craft work kind of look at what we can do. And more recently, uh, Skrillex had some classical suites on one of his albums that were well-made pieces of music. Obviously, if you're not into Skrillex, you're not going to get there in the first place. As I say, I think this would be great as a live throwaway piece. I mean, I would be gutted if they closed their live set with this because you've got several better songs than this, haven't you, Yellow, really?
0: You'd have been standing on your own in the empty stadium going, one more tune? Leave us with that. (laughs) But I was, what, 11 when this was a hit. And I come from a certain socio-economic group where um, classical music was very much respected by my elders and betters. And kind of the point of rock music was that it was not just rebelling against Val Gunican and Frankie Vaughan and all that lot. It was also rebelling against classical music. Because classical music is what you were made to do in music class when you were forced to learn some instrument you didn't really want to learn. So... From that point of view, it was quite mischievous of ELO to actually drop in Beethoven's Fifth into a rock song. And that's got lost now. I think that context has been lost.
1: I would say, since we're all just shooing in our favourite classical bangers, there is a record that I've got behind me very, very safely stored. It's by an insecure maniac. And it samples the hooked-on classics where they put the sort of discoed it up and makes it into a breakbeat hardcore track uh, and it's worth 150 pounds so listen to it decide it's brilliant and then via the patreon method get in touch with us and you know what subscribers <laughs> i'll do it for you 120 quid mate i'll not 30 quid off i don't care i might even make you a t-shirt as well <laughs> but yeah it's genuinely my most expensive piece of vinyl i don't really know why
0: Yet another amazing Patreon perk for your listeners. That chicory tit gig is so gonna happen now.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: it's time for us to grapple with. The 80s! This is Africa by Toto. The second of just three top 20 hits that they had between 1979 and 1983 peaked at number three, their highest-placed hit. A cover version by Weezer peaked at number seven in 2018, but only in the physical singles chart. Africa's been sampled by loads of people. Jason Terulo and Pitbull have sampled it, but there's numerous hip-hop acts have sampled Africa, including, for example, Wiz Khalifa, Naz, Charul and Exhibit. Africa has had 1.6
1: billion streams on Spotify. Thank God this song's come along because on the basis of what we've had so far, I was starting to think that I don't actually like music. But what a whopper this is. The main riff's, it's the bass line. The beat is deceptively simple. And then it's got a chorus that is more stirring than the average national anthem. I think when you think of straightforward pop genius, I reckon this tune sits up there with Billy Jean, uh, Seven Nation Army, I Need You Tonight, Everywhere. Tunes like Shut Up and Let Me Go. All of those simple-sounding songs that you kind of think, oh, I'll bet that only took a minute to write, but that I also think we could all spend our entire lives attempting and never get anywhere close to. I think that when soft rock, or if you prefer, yacht rock, came cruising back into fashion in the last decade, this was one of the big gateway drugs. This was one of the tunes where suddenly everybody started listening to this again. In the same way that Journey Don't Stop Believing had a weird revival and crossover, you know, for quite a long time, peak time, I was dropping this in in the middle of the night and still from time to time do. And I think you should use this as a gateway drug. Let this tune open the door to John Farnham and Starship and ELO's Good Songs and Christopher Cross. And I even think, let it set the foundations for bands like Coldplay and some Weezer stuff. I just think it's wonderful soft rock. There are loads of times now. I'm glad that we stopped hanging around exclusively in hard to find dive bars, listening to painfully cool obscurity and just started to embrace the stadium of it all. And this tune absolutely has me singing from the comfortable seats. I think it's outstanding.
2: We talked a couple, three episodes ago about the Cars, who didn't have a hit with My Best Friend's Girl in 1978. Mm
1: -hmm. I will not acknowledge that
2: no and i was thinking about this about how the journey from where the cars started to where the cars became and if you think they started roughly the same time and toto's first big hit certainly in the u.s was hold the line which is a rock record it's a guitar based rock record same as my best friend's girl fast forward five years and the cars are doing drive which is the softest of all soft rock and toto are doing this i mean They're a rock band, Toto. It's really hard to discern a guitar in Africa. Towards the end, where it builds a little bit, you can hear a little bit of guitar, but for the rest of it, you can't even hear a guitar in it. A lot of it feels to me like a man who's got a new synthesizer and he's found some new sounds it can make. The instrumental bit in the middle of it is utterly preposterous, right? The whole is absolutely ridiculous, right? Surely we can agree on this. It's also a song that feels like it's been written by a white man who has only ever seen Africa on, like, a postcard. The thing it reminds me of more than anything, and stick with me, this is going to sound a little bit weird, is Do They Know It's Christmas? (laughs) Because lyrically, it feels like this kind of weird imagined version of what Africa is like without any evidence whatsoever. Obviously, it reaches a peak, pardon the pun, with the whole... Rising like Olympus above the Serengeti bit, which is just again nonsense. It's not a rock record, in my opinion. It's not even really soft rock, it's just a piano led, ridiculous song about an Africa that doesn't exist. Right now, having said all that, I mean, Christ, it's a banger, isn't it? It's hard to not get involved in the chorus. I had actually exactly the same thing written down: Journey, Don't Stop Believing. That the other thing is Hall of Notes, You Make My Dreams Come True. That this weird revival of these odd songs that weren't a hit, Don't Stop Believing, never made the top 40 in the UK on its release, right? Never really hits. I know Africa was a bigger hit here, but suddenly have had this incredibly unlikely second coming. To the point where I think Africa is arguably, if you asked 100 people, all the songs that we've ever covered on this podcast, I'd be surprised if Africa wasn't the most well-known amongst a broad demographic of all of them. Everybody knows Africa by Toto, don't they? Everybody. Young, old, everybody in between. The one thing I had never noticed before is that it's got a different vocalist in the verse and the chorus which is kind of hard to discern, but they have two singers, Toto, at this particular point in the Toto 4 album. And so it's a different singer sings the chorus and sings the verse. I think I like Hold the Line more than this. I don't know whether I love it and it's an absolute classic or it's absolutely preposterous or it's both. It might be both of those things. I don't know. Help. I feel
0: I need to push back a bit there, Nick, with something that you said before I refer to my notes. You, you said that Toto kind of made this journey from rock band to soft rock band. I think it was more complicated than that because Toto, before the film Toto, were highly in-demand session musicians and they worked with everybody. I've not got my list in front of me, but the people they worked with were 70s soft rockers. Steely Dan is one I do remember, but they also played on all the Boss Gags classics and they co-wrote songs like Lowdown and Lido Shuffle, for Boz Skaggs. So it's almost like the Line is perhaps more of an outlier and Africa and Rosanna were more
2: in keeping with what they normally did i don't know i've been listening to a lot of toto and i think it does start heavier than it ends up you've probably listened to more toto deep
0: cuts than i have to put it mildly
2: i wouldn't recommend it with any good conscience to be honest
0: i did try the album that africa and rosanna came from in the hope of unearthing all sorts of gold nah didn't find anything i do need to underline just how absolutely massive a track this has got some stats for you internationally Africa is the fifth most streamed track of the 1980s given the four tracks that are ahead of it Aha, take on me queen another one bites the dust guns and roses sweet child of mine the police every breath you take in the UK if you take all the songs from the 70s 80s and 90s together Africa is the third most streamed songs of those combined three decades behind wonder wall and bohemian rhapsody that is how massive it is right this was originally hit in 1983 when i was 21 and in common with a lot of other 21 year olds who were students at the time i cared about image and being cool and being alternative and being hip therefore i had no interest in toko i had a kind of disdain of Toto wasn't helped by the fact that when John Peel was introducing on top of the pops, he referred to them rather sort of sneeringly as uh, looking like a bunch of accountants. And I was like, yeah, accountants rock. We don't want that. We want haircuts. We want manifestos. We want interesting fashion choices. We don't want Toto. For us in the UK who were getting with the new wave of synth pop, U.S. pop still felt firmly stuck in the 1970s. And for us, it just felt like things had stagnated, things hadn't progressed. And yeah, this got to number three, but I barely remembered it for decades afterwards. If you had told me 40 years ago that one of the most popular and enduring classics of the 1980s would end up being Toto's Africa, I would have probably fainted on the spot. Yeah, it started getting popular In the second half of the 2010s, as far as I can tell, I've tried to find out why it happened. I'm still none the wiser. I thought there might have been a particular viral moment, like don't stop believing being featured on Glee and then covered on X Factor. I can't find anything like that with Toto's Africa. I know how I came to rediscover Toto's Africa. It's a bit weird. So 2016, 2017, I was rediscovering dance music on vinyl and my managers were Deep House and Balearic. And my marketplace of choice was Juno Records. And I used to spend a lot of time on the Juno Records site playing their sound clips of big selling vinyl 12 inches and LPs. Came across this track by Late Night Tough Guy, Called Bless the Rains. It was doing really well on the Judo sales chart. So I thought, well, I'll give that a listen. And I played it and I thought, oh, this is a really nice lyric instrumental track. It's really hypnotic and beautiful. Gonna buy that. So I bought Bless the Rains by Late Night Tough Guy, unaware of what it was based on. And that is a nine and a half minute track on 12 inch. And for the first five minutes, it's this lovely lyric instrumental it's basically riffing off the stuff that's at the beginning of africa and only at the end of the long 12 inches toto's africa come in and it was only then i thought oh god yeah sort of remember this one I did some early vinyl DJ nights before I got my regular gig where I fancied myself as a bit cooler than the DJ I've turned into. And I played this balearic instrumental version of Africa. And this chap, like 30 years younger than me, came up and said, like, what, you are you playing Toto's Africa? I was like, what, well, you've heard of Toto's Africa? So it was a really weird way of coming back into it, knowing the track. When I started my vinyl nights in earnest, God, I played the vocal bit of that Late Night Tough Guy remix week in, week out for the two years until COVID closed us down. People demanded it at the end of the night. Almost every night I'd finish with that remix. Now I'm a digital DJ, people still demand it all of the time. I don't play it as frequently. I think besides that, Trev's dropped down the frequency a lot more than I have. It's an end of night track for me. I'd never dream of dropping it into the middle of a set. It's like last two or three tracks to send you all home with a bit of a sing along. I can't explain why it works so well. It's basically meaningless, deeply silly lyrics. I spent ages when I had better things to do, trying to research whether you actually could see Kilimanjaro above the Serengeti. They're about 200 miles apart. The curvature of the earth works against it happening theoretically you could but there have been no reported sightings of kilimanjaro above the serengeti just thought i'd let you know that yeah the co-writers of the song they've tried to explain the lyrics after the fact but it feels a bit kind of yeah it does feel after the fact to me when Africa was recorded, it was thought of as somewhat of a throwaway track, very nearly dropped from that album. The writers have admitted that some of the surviving lyrics were just placeholder lyrics while they're messing around in the studio. We've been here before Sex on Fire, Kings of Leon, similar origin story. And yeah, I agree. There's something utterly glorious about this record. Transcends any rational explanation. Absurd and yet magnificent. Perhaps it's just really well put together. They were highly sought after session musicians. They knew what they were doing. Most of Toto played on most of Michael Jackson's Thriller album, for God's sake. So while a lot of big revival tracks have their moment, then you get sick of them, and they go back into storage, just as you do with a lot of big chart hits. I really should be sick to the back teeth with
1: Africa by now, and yet I'm not,
0: and it's weird.
1: I totally agree with what Nick was saying. The songwriting nature of this is it's ridiculous. This sounds like it's someone describing Africa, the country, which is what a lot of American politicians think, that there is a country called Africa as opposed to a continent called Africa, obviously. And that leans into, I think, what makes it great. And I think Nick nailed it 100% with the word preposterous. It's kind of the preposterous nature of it that makes it so glorious. and I, I think it's what makes some of the bands that I referenced whole play. They're not a serious rock band, but you can't argue with some of the hits. I do think in the same way that Journey, and people say that it was the uh, Lee version of it, I think Journey turning up in Family Guy was very, very big for Don't Stop Believing. And I think this tune, Turning Up in Family Guy, was very, very big because it exposed the type of people who watch Family Guy to it. There's suddenly like, oh, yeah, that's actually quite a good song. I was getting requested Journey at Metal Nights and I started getting requested this at Metal Nights by punky-type kids, you know what I mean? There was one other track of interest,
0: actually, on the, was it Toto 4 album that this and Rosanna are on. A, it was actually the follow-up single, didn't do nearly as well, it's called I Won't Hold You Back, and the main vocal sample in Another Chance, Roger Sanchez, which ended up coming to number one, is a direct lift from I Won't Hold You Back by Toto. So there you are. Let's go to... This is East 17 with Deep. It was the second of 15 top 20 hits they had between 1992 and 1997. That includes number one. This one peaked at number five.
2: So for every era of boy bands, there's always a bad one, isn't there? You know, there's always a lot of clean cut boys in the Beatles and a lot of bad boys in the Stones. A lot of good looking boys in the City Rollers, a lot of bad boys in... I don't know. Fill me in, Mike. Give me a bad boy-boy band of the late 70s. I haven't really thought this through. Um, Shawaddy Waddies, let's say. The Darts.
1: The bad boys of rock. Shawaddy Waddy. Parents, lock up your daughters. It's Shawaddy Waddy.
2: The Dead End Kids. There you go. There you go. And then, so in the early 90s, you know, clean-cut boy band, nuked on the block, Bross, and then we've got E17 from the East End of London, just a bit of rough, so to speak. Now, I like E17, and this is going to sound like utterly ridiculous, but I'm going to make a distinction between early and late era E17. Early era E17, quite interesting, you know, make kind of dance records, House of Love, that sort of thing, powerful, decent, progressive at the time, pop music. And then later year E17 are rubbish. Later E17 just try and morph into take that, I think, by releasing dross like uh, Hey Child and that thing with Gabrielle, if you ever. And it just gets really erection section slick stuff. And it's horrible. But we're still in early E17 days at this point. So Deep, written by Tony Mortimer, who wrote Stay Another Day and lots of E17's other hits. I actually have always really, really liked Deep, and I don't really know why. It's catchy, it is got a really kind of little melodic, tinkly sort of backing thing going on. This sort of, you know, Waltham Stowe, I hate to use the word rap in advance of what's coming next, really, because it's about as far away from rap as you can get, but that's the sort of the style of the verse, isn't it? You know, and then they come together in the chorus, and we're going deep, deep down, Obviously, they ended up being a bit of a shambles. In uh, Brian Harvey, God bless him, ended up quite shambolic. He was sacked from the band, then ran himself over with his own car, and and so on and so forth. They're one of those bands, also E17, by the way, that are like Trigger's Broom. They are still performing as E17, but neither Tony Mortimer nor Brian Harvey are anywhere to be seen. There is a lesser member of E17 still in E17 with two people that weren't in E17 originally I don't know what else to say about Deep it sort of saved their career in a lot of ways because House of Love got to number 10 their follow-up single did pretty poorly and they were desperate for a hit and this went top five and essentially probably set up the rest of their quite a long string of hits right up until the late 90s I was too old for it at the time but I still like it anyway I think if you're probably a little bit younger than me maybe E17 were you were your new kids on the block
1: I think on another week, this could have performed better than I think it will perform. I think there is a possibility on another week this could have performed worse, actually. Broadly speaking, I find East 17 hilarious. In the video, they come across as what we now call roadmen. They are dressed in matching tactical military combats. They're leaning out of cars, doing gun fingers as they deliver what you could only describe as abrasive, grimy pretty confrontational, piano-led slow jam, as Nick puts it, erection section crap. Um, It's a song about doing it. And the key question, as with all songs about the sex, is does this make you feel like doing it? Now, as a straight, white, middle-aged, middle-class man, I think I speak for everybody generally. And indeed on this matter, when I say yes, when I look... Brian Harvey, a man who, as Nick said, ran over his own head with his car whilst being sick out the door after eating too many jacket potatoes. He's wearing a sniper's cap and he's rhythmically nodding his head whilst grimacing like a proper bad man from the ends. He puts his finger to his mouth to say, shh, yes. Yes, the answer is, it does make me feel like doing it. It does make me feel sexy. It makes me feel exactly as sexy as these sexy lyrics. And undo the top button. I'm going to give you some of these lyrics because these are <laughs> these are wonderful. I want to do it till my belly rumbles. While I fiddle, you can fantasize. I mean... If at this point you are not bubbling over with your frothy effervescence from the groin, I don't know what's going to happen when I tell you this, because this is going to push you over the edge. I tiggle in the middle as we giggle in. I mean, that is what sex is, isn't it? He's somehow managed to take the very essence of what is a primal urge that we all have inside us, and I tiggle in the middle as we giggle in. That describes Every sexual encounter I think everybody has ever had. But it's not just smut. There is a message about personal hygiene in there as well. I'll wash yours, you wash mine. I mean, these guys have got it all going on. This is steamy stuff indeed. But honestly, the question I'm asking is, are we really allowing our kids to listen to this filth? You're sincerely disgusted. You've given the abridged versions here. I I need to give you the full couplets
0: of both of these lyrics because they, they, they need their full context for some extra preposterous magnificence. So the first one, I want to toss. Remember that word. It's going to be important later. I want to toss. I want to tumble, feel and fumble. I want to do it till my belly rumbles. So lay back and close your eyes. While I fiddle, you can fantasize. That's the first one. Second one, right? Oil your skin within. you. Hold you tight. I'll butter the toast if you lick the knife. And take a shower, maybe bubble the bath. I'll wash yours, you wash mine. Yeah, we'll have a good laugh.
2: It's genius, isn't it? Absolute genius. Is it one of those over bath showers? (laughs) You know, where somebody's in the bath and somebody gets in and tries to have a shower. That's no fun.
1: I think it's one of those, you know, the old-fashioned showers before we got power showers, where you've got to kind of attach two rubber hoses to the taps, and then you kind of get a a flaccid, lukewarm drizzle. Because I I think most of what you're getting from this is a a flaccid, lukewarm drizzle. (laughs) Honestly, I've got to... I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I did my E17
0: deep dive. My deep, deep dive, if you will, straight after my Frankie Vaughan deep dive on the same Sunday morning. e 17 did not compare well. Most of their hits for me seem to fall into two camps. There are the blaring dancey ones and then there are the low slung urban-ish ones. I really dislike the blaring, dancey ones. I particularly hate House of Love, their first hit. I loathed it at the time, and I loathe it now. Horrible record. So this being the next hit after House of Love, and this charting higher than House of Love, meant that they were then set up to repeat the low-slung urbanish template and actually their next hit slow it down that's almost a carbon copy of this one as with Frankie Bourne as with ELO I'd say this is an unrepresentative hit for E17 but for a different reason as deep as the only E17 single that I liked at the time and it's the only E17 single which I still like now I know stay another day always left me cold sorry And the lyrics are almost endearing. The lyrics sound like something that a spotty teenager with no actual sexual experience would scribble down in an attempt to sound like a red-hot Mr. Lover Lover Man. Because, like, what woman in her right mind would fall for that sort of guff? Does she really want her toast buttered if she licks the knife? Questionable. But warming to my theme what woman in their right mind would fall for E17? Yeah, I get it. Take that with the Beatles, E17 with the Stones. Yeah, take that with the nice boys you could take home to meet your mum. E17 with the bad boys, who drag you up an alleyway for a rope. But still, look, I do not wish to be gratuitously rude about celebrities because being gratuitously rude about celebrities is so 2000s and I'm not Paris Hilton. But, well... Aside from Tony Mortimer, who was admittedly comely, the rest of the band aren't what you might call classically handsome, are they? But they had hits for five years. That's two years longer than the statutory boy band tenure. People love them. I don't understand why they loved them. Oh, by the way, New Kids on the Block should say Transitioned from good boys to bad boys, when they acronymized and became uncut up They tried to get all straight and tough. Didn't really work.
2: Yeah, and Brian Harvey's life and career has had a lot of low points. One of them was trying to represent the UK at Eurovision and losing to Scooch.
1: <laughs> I like Brian Harvey as an idea because we've mentioned this before, I think we need pop stars like that because he was a pop star. He was something to talk about. He was, you know, a a bit of a joke, but they had a lot of hits, so not that much of a joke. He was a prototype Mm. dappy Mm. and he he was tabloid fodder. And I think that's what we're missing at the moment. There's not a great deal of tabloid news to be got out of Ed Sheeran and and George Ezra. Um, You know, talented as those people are. And the zero sexual experience point is wonderful. There's a scene in the in Us where he says, uh, so when it comes to having the sex, do you put your balls in? And he goes, yeah, sometimes you can. It sounds like that type of conversation, doesn't it? You've never really done it, have you, mate?
2: The starkest thing to do is to look at the charts this week, because this is at number six in the charts. and A new entry at number two in the charts this week is take that. Why can't I wake up with you? So here's the smut. I'll be the sponge that wets you down. And then take that is the exact opposite, which is why can't I wake up with you? Because we're not allowed to sleep in the same room because mother wouldn't like it. <laughs> you are at both ends of that spectrum in the same charts.
1: Biz did a parody article at the time when Brian Harvey was talking about taking ease with like eating smarties, you know, because he was such a bad boy. And Gary Barlow, sort of had a bit of an attempt to come out. Yeah, I'm also a bit rock and roll. And Fizzy's article with <laughs> Harry Barlow sometimes goes for two days without a bath. If
0: take that, why can't I wake up with you? It's because mum won't let us. I think E17's deep is, right, as soon as he had to shower, get out before mum comes back from bingo. And it's been at my toast. I can tell you about someone round. What
2: was he buttering the toast with? His knob of butter. I don't know, he says if you want to lick the knife. But then, that's not very sexy, is it? Because if I make a bit of toast and lick the butter off the knife...
0: Brian, there's saliva in me lure pack! What you been up to? Oh, come on. Let's leave this. Let's move forward. Two. The
2: Lordies. Look. If you had...
0: One shot. This is Lose Yourself by Eminem. The ninth of 40 top 20 hits that Eminem has enjoyed between 1999 and 2020, 35 of them as a lead, just five as a feature. It's the fourth of oh, 10 number ones that Eminem has
1: had, got to number one in 21 different countries. Unlike East 17, who are hilariously lovable with their unconvincing posturing, Eminem is pretty believable. And that he strikes me as someone who is more than capable of being utterly unpleasant. I I think he's so convincing uh, with his shtick that I honestly, truly believe he is an absolute twat. I used to love Eminem until I stopped laughing at the awful things that he says and does and started suspecting that he's just a dick who's managing to hide in plain sight. But that's true, I think, of an awful lot of uh, hip-hop culture. It involves a lot of posturing. And for every hip-hop artist who talks down violence, there's one who talks up violence and spends all the time talking about how good they are and how rich they are and how they're going to kill everybody else. And yeah, it might be a character, but it's still what they're saying. The thing about it is, is... Eminem is really very good at that art form. I think songs like Kim are an absolute travesty. I think he's repeated and explicit. Homophobia should be given a far, far tougher ride than it gets. But as the entire world seems to have squinted and has got past that, if you manage to get past that, I think he's formidable. I think this song, because it isn't about how hard it is to be rich and it isn't about how much he hates his mother and it's not about all the things that he hates. It's not even about how much he hates pop stars, of which he very much is one. This is something else. This is a borderline new metal sugar. It moves along. It's got a, an undeniable groove to it. It's got some unbelievable syllabistic delivery and it rolls like a proper hip hop anthem. The actual message out sees in the moment is, you know, is a positive message. What a dick.
2: What a tune. So I've never really been into rap in any meaningful way. Occasionally, there's a song that comes along that is perhaps a little bit more melodic. So, you know, in the 90s, a bit of the Coolio stuff I quite like, Warren G, Regulate, that sort of thing I quite liked, but I've never been an Eminem fan. I mean, I agree with everything that Trevor said about him as an individual, and I think that's put me off in a lot of ways from taking more of an interest But he is one of those people that if the songs come on the radio, I can stomach them in a way that I can't with some other rap. Because I think that with some of them, there is more musicality to some of them. Think about something like My Name Is. You know, it's got a tune almost. I don't want to say it's pop rap because it isn't. But to me, it's at the radio-friendly end of rap that it has got a slightly less angry and maybe more playful sometimes type of melody to it. I mean, lose yourself an important record in some ways. It was the first rap song to win the Academy Award for Best Song. It seems to be one of those songs that gets universal appeal. I don't think I've ever met anybody who doesn't like it. I think it is magnificent. I genuinely think it is a masterpiece. It's certainly Eminem's best record by a mile, by eight miles, in fact what i think i like about it is because lyrically it is a very universal lyric in the sense that everybody has been in a position where they are put under pressure and have to deliver everybody's been in that with a job interview an exam obviously in this instance somebody's three minutes of potential fame on stage but everybody's been in a position where they have to perform under pressure and it's a lyric therefore that i think speaks a universal truth to everybody um and i think that's what's great about it there's a bit where it stops the outro has got a really nice tinkly piano melody to it for the last 30 40 seconds of it the groove of it is obviously magnificent i agree with trev i think it's just it's the delivery is incredible i think it's beautifully written so not an artist i am a fan of But I think, I genuinely think this is a kind of modern masterpiece.
0: I'm going to give you some more stats, as with Africa, just to underline how massive a hit Lose Yourself was. So Eminem's most streamed track on Spotify, 2 billion streams. Note that Africa had a mere 1.6 billion streams. 51st most streamed song of all time internationally. Second most streamed song of the 2000s only behind Coldplay Yellow. Yeah, I'm with you guys. When it comes to Eminem, I prefer the earlier funny stuff. I did do the deep dive, but I only went as far as 2010. That's exactly halfway through his run of 40 top 20 hits because after 2010, my interest in him dwindled to almost nothing. I'd actively avoided him 20 tracks in a row was plenty. A lot of Eminem's lyrics are, shall we say, transgressive. And that worked for me with those very earliest hits because they felt performatively brassy in a South Park kind of way. I didn't need to take his persona seriously. A bit adolescent, but hey, it stopped working for me with the later hits because they felt a good deal less playful and, well, just more plain nasty, I suppose, But then there are these two hits, both from the early 2000s, which exist for me on a different plane than any of the other 38 hits he had. One is Stan, still gives me shivers, still stops me in my tracks. The other one is Lose Yourself on both of them. Eminem sounds like a seriously gifted artist who could write and perform genuinely affecting material. You could also make a strong case for Love the Way You Lied, both parts of that, where he collaborated with Rihanna. That had something to say, as dark as it was. But on most of the rest of them, it sounds at best like a clever cartoon character. At worst, like a deeply troubled man or a deeply unpleasant man, or just a deeply lazy man, as some of them sound like barely any effort has gone into them. He's phoned it in. This, however... A classic. I've never seen the film from which it springs, Eight Mile. I want to see Eight Mile. I suggested we watched Eight Mile a few days ago. It was turned down. (laughs) I want to watch it because I do actually know about battle rap in the UK, at least. Like when he talks about choking, I know that's the term that you use in battle rap for when you forget your lines and when you dry up. I was immersed in battle rap. Culture for about six months. First of all, for a feature I wrote locally in Nottingham. Secondly, when I decided to upgrade that to uh, the last feature I ever wrote for The Guardian, actually, I got to G2. And I attended battle rap events. I watched endless battle rap videos. It led to probably the most cool moment of my journalistic career ever. I don't think there are any other contenders unless you count getting drunk in the good mixer in Camden Town with the lead singer of Scouting for Girls after an Owl City gig. That's a very distant second. Oh, I got in the main Guardian newspaper once and once only because I won Guardian Correction and Clarification of the Year for suggesting that all the 50 Cent's entourage wore black berets. i would misheard my interviewee. They all carried blackberries, the portable device um yeah that's why it's not the pulitzer but i'll take it right so my actual coolest moment of all time the big battle rap crew about 10 years ago was don't flop i don't think they exist anymore but they had a ginormous don't flop event in nottingham which i went to and i was introduced to all them. i was brought into it all by someone who actually had his first hit single last year it's a rapper called brucey e. he was very big on the rap scene then and there i was watching the show and brucey e was on stage and he said to the collective hip-hop heads We got the Guardian in the house tonight. Everyone make some noise for Mike Atkinson. And 450 hip hop fans actually went, ooh, 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 ooh. I have never felt more OG
1: in my life.
0: Massive digression. Can't remember where we were, but there you are.
1: I I would recommend watch the film. It's very good. Mm. And the outtakes on it show just how good Eminem is. There's some just actual battle rapping and he's, he's brilliant at it. but battle rapping it's very very hip-hop it's confrontational it's people standing there and telling each other how much better than they are than the other person and it just sometimes feels like it's a fight about to kick off no i know that's the art form i know the idea is you do not ever kick off but also when you are just it's right let's slag each other off as cleverly as we possibly can it's still the the basis of it is confrontation and it would be impossible to talk about hip hop without then saying, you know, sometimes they do shoot each other. So maybe the whole battle rap thing, you know, because it does so often spill over into violence and there's loads of examples. Jay-Z versus Nas was a, a rap battle between two very, very big names and that never spilled over. And that was, you know, everybody said they did it the right way. But the fact that you're then having to say, well, they did it the right way. It never spilled over into violence kind of points out the fact that a lot of the time it does still spill over into violence. And I think what makes this tune so great is that it's it, this isn't Eminem. This isn't his character. And I have issues with this idea that you can, oh, it's a character, so I can say what I want. So I can repeatedly, explicitly be homophobic because it's just a character. Yeah, but your character keeps on saying that if my mate who shares homophobic memes, if that's all he ever shares, I start to think, yeah, you're homophobic, mate. But this isn't Eminem. This is Marshall acting the character from the film. That's what makes it. And I think Stan the other tune that you were absolutely spot on about. What a great piece of music that is. That's not really Eminem. That's not the novelty cartoon character rapper. That's Marshall Mothers. And so if Marshall's not a dick, Bearing in mind, I've seen video clips of Marshall saying that he was going to pistol whip someone because they called him Marshall. Mate, don't name your album Marshall Mathers if you don't want people to know that that's your actual name. But you know what I mean? If he's not a dick, I want to see more of Marshall than Eminem because I'm, I'm sick of the guy. I think this isn't Eminem. This is Marshall Mathers, an actor performing a character. And therefore, it, I think that helps it be great.
0: Yeah, I think battle rap culture in the U.S., well, I mean, one big difference between the Eight Mile era and the Don't Flop era in the UK is the Eight Mile era, there was still battle rapping over backing tracks. Is that right? In, in Eight Mile, there is actually musical backing that had completely gone. Uh, by the time I took an interest in the scene, it was all. A cappella on the UK scene, don't flop was very much one big family. They'd rip shreds out of each other verbally on stage, and they'd all be in the bar chatting and having a laugh with each other beforehand, and all chatting and laughing in the bar in the hotel afterwards. I did actually call out one of the don't flop rappers on using faggot as a pejorative term in his battles. And you know what? He went away and thought about it. And he actually wrote back to me and he said, you've really made me think. He said, my mother's a lesbian. I'd never really thought that what I was saying would give offence. It's just within the context of don't flop where anything goes. He said, I'm going to stop using faggot as an insult. Maybe that was my coolest moment. <laughs> think about it.
1: Progress.
2: Yeah. Tony Adley and Simon Le bon were never getting into a fight in a car park at the back of the Prince's Trust gigs, were they? So I think, you know, rap does have a lot to answer for.
1: Um, So grime, towards the tail end of grime as it moved into drill was when I kind of stopped paying attention to as much rap as I did. I still dip in and out. But the underground grime scene, a lot of that was interrelation beefs between artists. And if they're going, oh, no, but it never goes over into violence. But if a video is 15 blokes with their faces covered, doing slash your throat motions and gun fingers whilst talking specifically about one artist. This particular video was Chipmunk. Chipmunk was a credible underground rapper who actually had some very big pop records. But I just watched that that whole aesthetic and go, yeah, you can talk about it not being about violence as much as you like. It still looks pretty. You are making a slash your throat that's not like, lol, mate, I think you're a bit of a tool. That's like, I'm going to decapitate you.
0: Yeah, the do not flop people, they went through a phase of thinking, oh, let's get some of the big US battle rap names over. That'll shift a few tickets. That'd be really good, that pro- progression. And they did it a couple of times, and they were like, oh, no, they aren't really what we're all about at all. We're not like that. We've got a totally different vibe going on. We want to stick to the way we do things here, where everybody knows ultimately they're just having a laugh, which was quite interesting. Right. Come on, then. Let's get to.
1: Bring the action.
0: This is Scream and Shout by Will I Am featuring Britney Spears. It was the ninth of 14 top 20s that Will I Am had between 2006 and 2014. Nine as a lead, five as a feature. It was the fourth of five number ones that he had. It's the last of six number ones to date that Britney Spears has had. Got to number 21 in 22 countries. And it's by far and away Will I Am's most stream track on Spotify, 719 million streams.
2: I've been incredibly conflicted about this for a few days now. I'm going to sort of explain the position kind of to and fro and probably decide as I go what I think about this. Now, Will I Am seems to me like a nice fella, right? He's been on The X Factor and The Voice and all these sorts. It seems like a nice enough fella. I can't work out. It feels to me a bit like he's the Pete Waterman of hip hop, in that he's extremely good at what he does, but what he does is bollocks, I think. So I have been listening to a lot of Will I Am. I imagine that some of it goes down very well on a Saturday night in the kind of places that you guys work. Some of it. And some of it is undeniably good. I was astonished to learn that he has essentially written or co written all of the hits I got a feeling my humps and assorted of other things i don't know what to think of him i think he's an absolute wazzock but i also think he might be an absolute genius and i can't really work out which side of those two things i fall on i think as a producer particularly is maybe where his real talent lies but then again he's co-written a, an enormous amount of what you would consider quite big hits like where is the love and shut up and all of those other songs so, I've never really been able to take him seriously as a soloist. I mean, the Black Eyed Peas are fine, and I think that the some of the parts there is elevates it a little bit. As a solo artist, I've absolutely never been able to take it seriously. It's all the song titles, you know, song titles with hashtags in and, and all this stuff, you just like... It just feels like, a, you know, that kid at school who was just trying too hard and just ended up looking like a pillock. And it just feels like that. This... I don't know what he's done to it, other than the fact that she says Britney bitch. It's actually quite hard to discern that it is Britney Spears. It doesn't sound anything like Britney Spears. So he's managed to produce the Britney Spears out of it to some degree. I mean, it is catchy. I'm it off at slight tangent here. There's a thing called Cattle Prod Cinema, which is about horror films. So the horror films with the jump scares. Right, that you're sitting in a dark cinema and there's a jump scare and you go, oh, as something leaps out at you. And someone described it as like, if you were sat in a cinema and somebody behind you, uh, when it was dark and quiet, just prodded you with a cattle prod, you'd also go <laughs> and jump out of your seat. And it feels like Will I Am songs are like the equivalent of like a cattle prod in the bang, 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 donk, donk, donk. <laughs> and then something will happen. And you're like, well, it feels like all these sort of ingredients are there, but in a sort of sound and fury signifying nothing kind of way, that it's just loud and machine tooled for something. I don't know. Fairground rides, as we were discussing recently, is it for that? Is it for kids' birthday parties? Is it for 11 year olds who want a sort of entry level into terrible <laughs> hip hop? Is it for radio? I don't know what it's for so I just I'm totally conflicted about it I think he's both a genius and an idiot and the most annoying thing I found out about him is that he's younger than me and then that just finished me off entirely so it feels a bit like squeezing an awful lot of success out of a very small amount of talent but I might be doing him a disservice there I don't know I don't wouldn't like him to come around my house and have this conversation with me because I appreciate he has appeared on a lot of very big hits.
0: I am giving myself a neck injury for the amount of nodding I was
1: doing to that, Nick. <laughs> um Behind the Magic, there are moments that I sometimes lose faith a little bit with this podcast. For example, when I had to listen to the first two submissions that we had this week, you know, I was sat there going, oh, why? Uh, and then there are moments where i remember why i really enjoy this podcast and that review by nick was one of them what that was exactly what i love doing this for because i just thought that was an outstanding review i laughed at e17 i mocked e17 so i have to laugh at will I Am's appearance in the opening shot of this video because he is for some reason dressed as an electro-communist guerrilla leader, which is silly. And this is silly. And everything that Nick said is right. It's so silly. Both of these artists are silly. But I don't think you can argue that they're not great at what they do. And yes, what they do is a lot of the time silly, but they're very, very good at it. I think two years ago, this would have actually just sounded awful. It's utterly derivative, isn't it? But there is something about the filthy electro sound that's just coming back into the consciousness now. It's now old enough to be, oh, it's quite naff, but oh, actually, it's a bit like a warm hug as well. It's lyrically nonsensical. Uh, It contains a lot of, if not all of, the points of mockery that I've levelled at the other tunes today that I've given a kick into. But... As the sound of that time, I think it's a very good example, for better or for worse. The question is, on a Saturday night involving bottles of VK and performance-enhancing bombs, do you want to be musically educated? Do you want to be challenged? Do you want to be put outside your comfort zone? Or do you secretly crave the slightly dirty electro feel of this that reminds you of sticky floors and splashback? And I do, really. This is absolute dog shit. But it's brilliant. I've said it before, not everything needs to be super intelligent and really, really clever and wow, so well crafted. This is just stupid, but it's fine for all of that. And honestly, if ELO, with their wild rework of Rollover Beethoven, if that's clever, I would prefer to sit in the dumb seats at the back of the class with these couple of bell ends. I think you're right about he seems a bit mental, but. He's on the right side of mental. I think Kanye West takes the mental, and he's too—he's too close to dangerous. Some of the things that he says aren't funny; they're mental. You shouldn't say that, mate. And I think laughing and applauding him for it, or letting him get away with it, is enabling really incredibly bad behaviour. There are comparisons to be drawn to Eminem when we laugh and let him get away with stuff. That you know, you go, no, 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 mate, that's not okay. Whereas Will I Am doesn't do any of that. You know, he doesn't say controversial weird things and, yeah, seems a bit batshit, but you're not checking him for sharp objects, are you? And likewise, Britney Spears. So, yeah, I'm on side with this.
2: I wouldn't randomly expect Eminem to turn up at a kid's birthday party dressed up as a dinosaur, but I think if Will.i.am did that, you'd just be like, oh, look, it's Will.i.am. Will.i.am did actually have a hit called It's My Birthday! Not very good. Oh, that's terrible. But if suddenly
1: somebody did turn up in a dinosaur at a kid's party, I think you'd probably take a chance on it being Will I Am. There was actually a Will I Am beef with, I
0: mentioned him earlier, controversial 2000s gossip blogger twat Perez Hilton, who alleged that Will I Am duffed him up outside some award ceremony or other. Oh, it dragged on for ages. Right. Neither of you have mentioned the Talisa controversy, so I shall mention the Talisa controversy. Talisa wrote a song and recorded it under the title "I Don't Give a Love" to use the substitute word. "I Don't Give a Love" by Talisa. It was never released because her producer said, mm, "No, I don't really want you to do that." So he gave it to Will I Am, and Will I Am rewrote the Talisa song with Britney Spears in mind. But you can still hear Talisa's vocals on the song, even though she was given no credit with writing it in the first place. So she didn't collect any royalties when it was a hit in 22 countries. Remember that? 22 countries it got to number one. Mm. Still processing that. So Talisa filed a lawsuit against Will I Am in 2012. She won it six years later in 2018, that entitled her finally to 10% of the publishing rights. She has since performed her original, I Don't Give a Love, live. And there are various YouTube clips of her singing it. The one that's got the most views, she's performing at GAY in 2019. It's remarkably similar to Scream and Shout. So that's outrageous. That is a black mark against the making of Scream and Shout. I've seen Will I Am live as part of the Black Eyed Peas years and years and years ago. They were supporting Macy Gray on M- Macy Gray's very first tour of the UK. God, she was diabolical. Dreadful gig that was. Quite enjoyed the Black Eyed Peas. They were very much pegged as conscious rap. Back then, that all led up to Where Is The Love. Then they started doing other things and switching. up. I was all for it to begin with. Uh, boom, boom, pow. Back when that got to them, I thought that was a fantastic track, referencing the 80s electro funk that I enjoy so much. Can't argue with I Got A Feeling. But then, with the Will I Am solo stuff, that's when, for me, it jumped the shark. <laughs> I've done The Deep Dive. God, some of his hits are weird. One of them samples Buggles' Video Kill the Radio Star. Another one of them samples The Charleston. I mean, that could be fun. You read that on paper, he sounds like a fun guy, but I've never bought into his shtick. I've never seen him on The Voice or The X Factor or whatever. I don't know the guy. He's not succeeded in making me love him. When I do remember this being a hit, I remember it because when it was number one i thought my god this is the official nadir of pop music pop music cannot get worse than this and it was one of the prime factors in me dropping out of following the charts for most of the 2010s it's odd because thanks to this podcast i've come round on Avicii. i've come round on calvin harris I should, by rights, come round to Will. I am considering how incredibly successful he was, but the best I can say about Scream and Shout is that I just about tolerate it these days. Che, just what we need. Another song about being all up in the club. Well, that dates it for starters. Nobody goes to clubs anymore. We should do a sort of 2024 revamp, which is like all, being all up in the daytime disco before we all go home and watch news at 10 on the telly. Um... Maybe I can tolerate it now because I've heard all of its ideas done many, many times before and done better. But once you separate this track from the pop context of its time, when you felt that every other hit was dipping into exactly the same bag of tricks... It's flagrant lack of invention is less bothersome to me because I'm not hearing stuff like this every single time I turn on the radio for hours on end. If you see what I mean. Poor old Britney. God. Thing is, Britney was already five years into her conservatorship. So I doubt she had much, if any, agency in the making of this. (laughs) Doesn't exactly play to her strengths. You only aware that she's on this because she says Britney bitch, which I think is about all she does, really. Footnote, since Britney has left Conservativeship and can make her own decisions, she did a fourth collab track with Will I Am last year. It's called Mind Your Business. Critical and commercial flop. Make Scream and Shout look like a nuanced masterpiece. I'll stick it on the Extra Tracks playlist.
2: It's that weird one he does with Mick Jagger. I think it's called The Hardest Ever, T-H-E. Oh, yeah. God. oh that's terrible.
1: Oh, wow. But the time change, and that was interesting, uh, not the time change, tempo change at the end. It sort of powers up into a weird electro banger. He was obsessed with electro. And now when you were talking about him not crediting to lisa yeah. um so the second time we've mentioned that band tonight because i mentioned dappy earlier didn't yeah. i yeah but when you mentioned that it reminded me of something buried in my knowledge centre and i i hope i've got the artist right i think boy's noise who are i think german electro techno they do records and ed banger it's very hard electro music did a track with will i am because he'd approached them and went, I love what you do, guys. And so they were like, all right, yeah, we'll have a go at this. And I mean, Boys Noise are cool. They are super cool. And then they were like, all right, well, you know, back and forth as you do these days through email. And then Will I Am just went and released it. And they were like, right, first of all, that's not finished. Secondly, we don't want our name anywhere near it. And he was like, no, you're part of the Will I Am family now. There is a bit of a weird thing where he believes his own hype in the same way, you know, that Kanye, but I'm Kanye West, I can do what I want. And he definitely went through this period of, yeah, I'm Will I Am. I can do what I like. And that mm. Talisa story reminded me of that. So that, yeah, mm. marks against
2: him. Uh. It feels a bit like, you know, Katie Price has a series of books that Katie Price has been absolutely nowhere near writing, but it comes under the name of Katie Price. It feels like there maybe is like a studio somewhere producing Will I Am records that he just stamps his name on. Didn't Da Vinci do that?
1: Didn't a lot of uh, the famous classical artists they think that that's what happened? And I don't know some people think that's what Shakespeare did. It's what Damien Hirst does, and he makes no bones about
2: it. So I love that we've now equated Will I Am with Shakespeare, while simultaneously <laughs> claiming that end dubs are at the centre of all music.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all comes back to end dubs.
0: <laughs> Maybe they'll be the Halsey of season three. <laughs> Shall we do some voting? Let's. Trev, start with you this
1: time. Easy first for Toto. Not a problem whatsoever. And an equally easy second for Eminem. Yeah, and an easy last, uh, ELO, I'm afraid. So Eminem's second place an artist who I've got issues with, but it's a great song. ELO, I really like the artist. Don't like that song. I'm torn for third place really between East 17. It's cringe, but I think it's a decent pop song. And Britney and Will's because that's cringe and I think it's a decent pop song. I'm gonna say because I think Will I Am is very good as a producer, whether or not you like it, I think he's good at it. I'm gonna go for Will I Am over it because there's something about the production of the E17 track that I thinks a bit lacking. It's got the bits there to be better. That piano tinkle is lovely, but it's just a bit not quite.
0: Okay. Right. Well, it was an easy last place for Will I Am and Brittany on this one. Really easy first place for Toto Africa. Eminem Lose Yourself could have been number one on many of other other episodes, so it's unlucky to come in second. And I have to put ELO in third. So Frankie Vaughan and East 17 go into my meh.
2: Nick, what about you? Uh, bottom place for the 60s, Frankie Vaughan. I just don't get it. Just a nursery rhyme. What is going on? Uh, In the Mare Zone, I am literally making this up as I go along. I'm going to put Will I Am and Britney Spears. ELO. I really hate putting ELO here because I think that if it had been any other ELO track, it would have won, probably. Third place, I would like to put E17's Deep, Deep Down. I've always loved that. I think I bought it probably at the time. Uh, Second place, I still think it's an absolutely ridiculous record, but obviously solid gold banger. And... God, the 22 year old me would be astonished to put Eminem's Lose Yourself as the best song of this week.
1: A lot of ridiculous this week. Yeah, three ridiculous songs. Four ridiculous songs out of six. A lot of preposterous,
0: for sure. Mm. And also three absolutely ginormous, mega, 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 mega international smashes, which we don't always get to that degree. I have the results. Last position, Frankie Vaughan for the 1960s. In the Met, we've got ELO and William and Brittany. Third position, East 17 for the 90s. Then an almightily huge jump and very close together. Eminem is in second position and Toto are in first position. That's just what we think. What really counts is what you think. Please let us have your votes. First, second, and third favourite songs in descending order of preference. No tied positions. Plus your most bad and hated, or at least your least favourite. All sorts of ways of voting. Best way is to join the Patreon supporters club. Patreon.com forward slash whichdecade tops. You can leave your votes as comments there. You get the full tracks embedded in Benjamin, the episodes, and all sorts of bonus stuff. Besides, oh, you can guest on the results bulletin as well, should you so wish. It's not compulsory. If you're not on Patreon, we are on X at which decade tops. We are on Facebook, search the name of the podcast. We are on email, which decade is tops at gmail.com. Voting deadline, 6 pm UK time, Tuesday, the 27th of february until we meet again it's
1: goodbye from nick bye and it's goodbye from trev before i go please do subscribe and thank you very much to the people who do subscribe because if we don't have subscribers we can't carry on doing it can we
0: uh all right and it's a here here and a goodbye from me goodbye <laughs>
2: Which decade is Tops for Pops?